Welcome back to another episode of Movement Underground Radio. Today's guest is an esteemed colleague and a doctor of physical therapy, Dr. Brent Brookbush, founder and CEO of the Brookbush Institute, which is a continuing education company that is absolutely changing the game when it comes to evidence-based education. Brent has been in the health and fitness industry since 1998 and has been an impassioned educator for over 10 years. He has more accreditations, certifications, and I care to list right now, as well as produced over 150 courses and has been the author of, a, of countless publications, including his book, Fitness or Fiction. It is my extreme pleasure to welcome Dr. Brent Brookbush to the podcast today. So here we go. Welcome to the Movement Underground Radio with your host, Mike Stella. What do high-performance athletes and people have in common? High-performance mindsets. We are here to take an underground look at the stories behind the athletes, therapists, trainers, and people who push their own limits so that we may expand our own. Take a deep dive underground with us in three, two, one. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to the Movement Underground Radio. This is your host, Mike Stella, and I am so thrilled to have an esteemed colleague join us today on the, on the podcast, uh, Dr. Brent Brookbush um, from the Brookbush Institute. So for those of you guys who are not following Dr. Brookbush online, you are doing it wrong. But um, I actually just wanted to start this conversation by, by thanking you because I came across your content probably in like the late 2000s, maybe like 11, 12, something around then. I don't know. I can't remember if it was on LinkedIn or Facebook. Obviously, Instagram wasn't a thing back then, to believe it or not, right? But right. Um, we and I just remember, and I think at that point, you, you hadn't even gone back to PT school. You were still mostly working as a strength coach at that time, maybe? I would have been in PT school in at that PT time. In PT school. Oh, yeah. And so for me, you know, I'm an athletic trainer and strength coach by trade. So for me, like seeing you kind of bridging that gap was really inspiring. And it, and it really did set me down a path of where I'm like, wow, look, this guy's doing it at a high level. I, I think I might have the chops to maybe do, you know, maybe follow in the similar footsteps. And I think we were both in New York city around that same time as well. Cause I remember seeing your videos, like the independent training studios. And I'm like, man, I got to jump on that. So I just wanted I'm to say thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, me too. I don't know why. I don't know what is wrong with us. Why are we doing this to ourselves? <laughs> I, I have no idea. Um, COVID central as it's been for the last year. I know. Um, it's unbelievable. But yeah, I mean, to your point, I think more movement professionals in the, in the strength and fitness realm should think about licensure, should think about going back to school because it definitely expands your your options and, and your financial security in the future. And I know people are like, oh, school's expensive. Well, school is expensive, but physical therapy, athletic training, chiropractics, these are jobs that have, have some real staying power and sure. the base salaries are definitely higher, right? The minimum salaries are definitely higher than we see kind of in the fitness realm. Right, right. And well, again, I think too, like even to that point, like, fitness and, and fitness and the health of fitness industry obviously has taken a huge hit this year, but in general, sure. there's such a wide, there's such a wide, I guess, lens from the people kind of practicing at the top of like a personal trainer, strength coach, maybe not the strength coach. Cause that's obviously a degree, but from the bottom, like, right. It's a really low barrier for entry. So I think people, when they hear, Oh, you're a personal trainer, 
they might have a little bit of a lower perspective or perception rather of, of your value. And then you start adding some of those other like advanced licenses and degrees. And it starts, like you said, kind of brings a little bit more, not clout. I guess there's always this idea of like perception of value to the general public or a client base, um, you know, versus maybe what your actual value is. And those things can be different, but no, I agree with you. Um, I, I definitely think this is something yeah. that I, I run into a lot with, you know, with even my own education is people who want to do the rehab side of the spectrum, but don't want to go back to school or don't want to go seek that, that licensure. And it, it definitely creates that gray area where they're, you know, potentially opening themselves up to liability, especially if they want to do sure. like hands on therapy, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously in most states, you can't do manual therapy unless you're licensed. Right. Uh, people ask about like our integrated manual therapy cert all the time. Well, can I do this and be able to do manual therapy? No certifications right. cannot increase your scope. That's not just ours. That's no certification. Can, can you expand on that? Can you expand on the difference between licensure and certification? Because I think this is so yeah. confusing for a lot of people. Yeah. So obviously we're, you know, part of the whole accreditation thing. And that's big. And we try to get as much value uh, for our colleagues as we possibly can. We want you guys to receive credit, but you know, certifications are essentially a stamp from a brand that says you completed X continuing it, right? right? Like that's what a certification is. It doesn't matter what certification we're talking about. It is a stamp from a brand that you did X continuing education. It does actually nothing to increase your scope. Yes. It's actually more of a, you could almost think of it as a marketing thing where some brand is making it easier for you to advertise to your patients or your, or employers that you are interested in and completed continuing education. Those are great things. There's nothing, right. there's no, wrong with that. I'm not putting down certification. Certifications are part of what we offer. That just is what it is. Now, licensure is a whole nother step. Now you're talking about state regulation. You're talking about legislation. You're talking about laws. You're talking about scope of practice. And in order to get a license, right, especially if we're talking about the United States, things get, the wording gets a little weird if we go into other countries, but if we're talking about the United States, you have to go to generally a degree program, a postgraduate degree program, and then take a state board license, right? Like I took the, the national physical therapy examination and I passed showing that I had the minimum standard of knowledge to be able to act as a physical therapist in the United States. Like these are a huge, that's a huge step. Huge leap that's, from the, yeah, yeah it's for a sure. huge increase in minimum barrier. I mean, three-year physical therapy degree is like, three years of hardcore torture, like ATCs. I know what's minimum two years, right? And then you guys get a license. I know no, it, so it used to be a minimum of four years. So it was a bachelor's degree minimum. And recently they just changed it to a master's degree minimum. So I think right. the NHS So the master's is one or two years. It's a two year master's. Right. That's, so that's what I was talking about. So now right. ATCs, DPTs, and even Kairos, you have to have undergrad, right? right? And then you're going to school for what you actually want to get licensed in after those undergrad requirements, either two years, three years, or in some cases longer. Yes. Um, it's a big step. So, and there's, there's a bunch of different issues, um, not to put down those who don't want to go that route, but it's like, yeah, there's a reason why you can't do rehab if you're not licensed. Like what we take on from a, a responsibility standpoint, a liability standpoint is very different. If somebody comes in with pain, I need to at least have basic knowledge to differentiate. Is this something I can treat or isn't it? 
Right. And even that can be a very serious question. Like, does somebody come in with low back pain? That's actually, you know, the, the classic examples of red flags would be, is this a kidney infection that's gotten out of control? Is this like something really, really insidious like cancer where right. you know, if we don't get somebody in to get checked like every, every month they go without treatment counts, yeah. you know, and that's, that's what you take on as a rehab professional, not to mention the responsibility of helping somebody out of a painful situation, which you don't really have when you're not a licensed yes. professional, right? Those I, responsibilities I, don't fall on you. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it's it's funny because like uh, about a month ago, I had two situations happen here. So I'm an athletic trainer by trade. I have a physician partner that I work with so that it's all kosher as far as licensure goes. Sure. Um, and we had an athlete uh, have a seizure like right outside, like in the gym. And, yeah. you know, like everybody's looking like kind of shell-shocked, like what to do. And then for me, it's like, okay, ATC mode kind of kicks in and I'm triaging, I'm I'm, organi- I'm activating the emergency action plan. I'm making sure, you know, we're not trying to, you know, we had people trying to hold them down. I'm like, no, we just clear the area, protect this athlete. The very next day I had a bodybuilding client come in. He's like, who I hadn't seen in over a year. And he was like, I have this horrible calf pain that just won't go away. I've been stretching it. I've been hitting it with my percussion gun. I've been massaging it. And I, I just, and, and it's starting to move up behind my knee. And I'm just like, uh oh! So I I refunded his session. I sent him to the emergency room, and it turned out he had a ninety percent blockage, a DVT in his calf. And and so you know, and I teach for Rock Tape, and we teach you know instrument assisted stuff, and we'll get non uh, licensed providers sometimes sneak into those classes because we believe that everybody should have access to this information. And then you have to determine what your scope of practice is. That's not you know that's on you as an individual. And we'll get personal trainers occasionally, like, I really want to do manual therapy. And like, yes, we've shown you the concepts and we've shown you the techniques. And it doesn't mean that you're not capable of performing this task from like a physical standpoint. You just don't know what you don't know. And so yeah, like, if exactly. someone comes on oh, my cat, my calf hurts and it's tight and you go, okay, you know what? I'm going to start down-regulating this tissue with some deep work. You might kill that person. Right. You know what I mean? So because you're not even aware of something like because you, size, you don't know what you don't know. know. And that's, that's where like, school. exactly. Yeah. When you're in PT school or athletic training school, or Cairo school, you you're getting some general medicine training so that you're at least aware that these things are possibilities, you know, same things like, Oh, my low back is killing me. Yeah. You could have kidney failure. Like that, yeah. that is something you need to be seen right now. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and so again, and it doesn't a lot of our responsibility sometimes is, knowing when it's not our scope and not our lane and knowing the right person to, to the right provider to send that person to. Yeah. And luckily it doesn't happen often to us. Right. right? I've only had, you know, in my career, I've only had probably two or three people I've had to send off to emergency rooms with serious, serious situations. But it's like the, the problem is, is like some of these problems are so catastrophic that it's like, could you even handle one death on your hands? Because right. I mean, like some of these things get that serious. That like the the DVRT, like he throws a clot and right. has an embolism and has an it's embolism. So long or something, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you're. I had a friend who was 40, 41 years old, had a pulmonary embolism, man, almost lost him. Wow, you know, like, and he was an athlete, yeah. crazy, Healthy crazy guy. athlete. Sure. 40, 40 years old, he's still throwing at like 85 miles per hour Wow! Uh, playing in these like invite only uh, baseball leagues, right? Like, so he was a crazy athlete and sure enough, these freakish things happen. Like, yep. so, yep. 
you know, you got to oh. be aware. It is, it is interesting. Like, you know, manual therapy is one of the reasons why I went to PT school. Um, you know, I was really, really early in the corrective exercise space, right? I was, yeah. I was, I knew of the NASM CES model before it had been published because I had access to Mike Clark through a position I had with New York sports clubs training their trainers. Right. Um, but you realize at a certain point with corrective exercise, there's certain things you can't do without manual techniques. Like right. it's really hard to address um, significant mobility issues of the cervical spine. If you have like no mobility, no manual techniques at your disposal, like sure. that can get really frustrating. Um, so, you know, if you really want to get into manual therapy, you really want to get into rehab. Yeah. Go back for your degree. I'm sorry that there's no other route for you to take, but you are taking on something fairly serious and, you know, big rewards come from big sacrifices. Sure. I might want to be able to do heart surgery, but you know, unless I'm willing to go to medical school, I shouldn't be allowed to perform heart surgery. And, and, and I know I'm making a, a pretty dramatic example there. But, but, but like, honestly, you're not, you gotta, though. I think that's a reasonable, you know, correlation to make is, is you're, you're, when you step outside of the fitness world and enter the healthcare world. And I think in the rehab space, that line's a little bit more blurry. But yeah. nobody would argue, like, you know what? I'm really into, you know, heart stuff. I think heart surgery is what I want to do. What kind of weekend cert can I take to start? You know what I mean? Nobody right. in their right mind would ever even consider that as an option yet on the, on the rehab side of things where, you know, again, and not to bash or judge anybody, but it's like, is there another way that I can circumvent the system that's well, in place? But let's talk about something that happens to, that to fitness professionals. That's really unfair too, which is any guy with a six pack can get on YouTube and advertise himself as a personal trainer. And sure. meanwhile, maybe somebody with a little lesser than that physique, me included, right? I don't run around with a six pack all the time. And people are like, where are your muscles, bro? Just most of the like, time. How are, you, how are you a personal trainer? Like, you don't have muscles and you're just going, the game is knowledge, right? not what I've accomplished. My job is to help you. I didn't spend the last 20 years of my career trying to figure out how to help me better. Right. If I just wanted to help me better, I'd go to the gym, right? No, I went to school, I studied, I wrote, I, you know, I got my teaching experience, all this other stuff I've done to try to help my colleagues, to try to help my clients, to try to help my patients. Like those are two totally separate paths. And it is pretty unfortunate that fitness, a lot of times we have to fight through all this horrible noise yeah. that's out there, um, you know, which is you know, when, when people are talking about certification and stuff and they're complaining about how much work a certification is or how much a certification costs, although our certification is included in our membership, we are trying to fix part of that problem, right? We got that right. little Netflix style thing, but, um, you know, you got to think you're trying to separate yourself from the noise and, and that's an important thing to do. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, you know, I think, I think you make an excellent point there. You know, it, it does go both ways. And I, and I think there's a lot of unbelievably intelligent personal trainers and strength and conditioning coaches out there that with that scope can help a lot of people. And so I think that's a, a great segue into like maybe my first question for you and, and on this manual therapy topic, because, you know, um, I, I'm a manual therapy junkie. And when I was in school as an athletic trainer, the culture at my school was like, oh, you know, we're not massage therapists. So, you know, we're doing advanced stuff like STEM and ultrasound and all this other stuff that at the time we were like, oh, that's better. Right. 
Um, but it was because it was the line that you couldn't cross, but like massage was like, Oh, you can go to, you know, massage spa and, and get a rub down. And so it wasn't until I took my first job at the university of Florida and I was working with the track and field program. And my, my athletic, the head athletic trainer was like, what's your experience with manual therapy? And I was like, I, I know like Swedish. That's what I learned. Like effleurage, petrissage to potent and vibration. Like that's what I know. He's like, okay, good. Effleurage. We call that a flush. And here's 50 athletes a day that you're going to work on that are healthy. And you're just going to do this for recovery. And that's what I did. And so, but meanwhile, I'm watching him on his table with athletes in pain, with athletes in mo- having mobility issues or, or dysfunction in terms of their performance. And he's instantly changing the way that they move and feel on the table. And I was like, I was like captivated by it. I was like, this is next level stuff. And, and I was, I'm so grateful to have had that experience and, and completely changed my perspective of manual therapy in a 180 degree fashion, because to me, it was like the cheat code of therapy. It's like, this is like, I feel like this is like a superpower that you have to like be exposed to like radioactivity to get, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I'm lucky that I was in that kind of hopper in that I call it sports medicine in a bubble because, you know, it was basically limitless resources and limitless time to spend with athletes and to really have that one-on-one mentorship with manual therapy. And then also a little bit of space to kind of learn the finer points on my own, you know, working with healthier athletes, uh, I think was huge. Um, what was your exposure like to manual therapy? How did you, uh, determine like, okay, I'm going to go back to school for this doctor of physical therapy degree, because I know this hands-on thing is what I want to do. Um, good question. So I'm going to get a little geeky here. Definitely Um, do it. If we get into, like information theory a little bit, we get into clinical decision-making and and what it is that we, we are trying to do, right. You could kind of boil down what we do in practice as trying to decide what interventions given all interventions are optimal for the client in front of us. And you start going, okay, well, how do I, how do I make those decisions? And a lot of people already probably are thinking, well, I do assessment, duh. Um, but you do end up with this like recurrent loop problem where sometimes you can pick an assessment that suggests a technique that makes that assessment better, right? So you end up in this feedback loop that's constantly making you look good, but maybe not necessarily great for the patient. Right. So then you have to move up the the chain a little bit and go, okay, well, how am I going to select those assessments better? And that's where like, for us, for me, the, the predictive models of dysfunction we've written come in, right? We need some sort of inductive uh, reasoning filter that helps us determine what are the correlated factors within a dysfunction or within a symptom cluster that we see come in. Um, And once you get to that level, once I got to that level, and this starts guys with like Yonda's upper cross syndrome, Yonda's lower cross syndrome, right? These are predictive models. These are early predictive models. You start with that and you kind of go, Okay, so I see, for example, um, let's say knee valgus, right? I see knee valgus and I start setting up my predictive model and I know that I have femoral internal rotation, I have tibial external rotation, um, but it doesn't take very long before you start going, okay, what about the other joints? What about some of the deeper muscles? Right. So I know if you guys think femoral internal rotation, tibial external rotation, you're like, okay, so I could release, right, my internal rotators and tibial external rotators, something like my TFL. I could activate my femoral external rotators, like my glute complex. Great. 
but then all of a sudden you start going, well, yeah, but what about your proximal and distal tib fib joints? Right. Right. What about how the talus is moving? What about the deeper muscles of the ankle that might be affecting dorsiflexion or your control of inversion, eversion, like your extensor longus digitorum, right? Or your extensor digitorum longus and your uh, extensor hallucis longus, right? So you start thinking about this stuff and you go, okay, it'd be really nice to be able to address that stuff. And it doesn't take very long to realize it's very hard to get to that stuff through self-administered techniques alone. Right. Right. So this starts personally, my curiosity into, okay, are there manual techniques to address these problems? And luckily at this time, I'm in that NASM bubble, the National Academy of Sports Medicine bubble that at the time CEO was Mike Clark, right? And he's bringing in the CES model and he's working with the NBA and like we're seeing all these athletes and him bring Grant Hill back into play and him work with Shaq towards the end of his career. And like, we're seeing these changes happen and we're like, oh, right. And it just kind of dawns on me like, okay, yeah, there's manual techniques that can, can affect this, right? So that spins into, okay, I need to go back to DPT school because after a while, like being a, a trainer and corrective exercise specialist, I capped out. At that point, I was already teaching. I had all the clients I wanted every day that I could possibly handle. I was doing everything within my scope of practice as a personal trainer. And then, you know, some of the financial stuff we talked about earlier on, I was also thinking to myself, okay, I'm, I'm 26 years old at this point and I'm making all the money I'll ever make. Like, this isn't going to work. Right. How do you sustain that for a lifetime? Exactly. Yeah. So I go back to PT school. Now, moving forward, if you ask me, why do I do manual techniques? My answer hasn't changed, right? I don't think manual therapy, I don't think of manual therapy as like, even so much as a modality unto itself. I think of manual therapy giving me two huge advantages when I get into clinic, which is one, I can access stuff that might be very hard to access using self-administered techniques. For example, SI joint mobilizations. There is no such thing as a great self-administered SI joint mobilization. Sure. Um, proximal tib-fib mobilization, uh, release of the psoas. I know there's some products out there, but mm -hmm. I still stand by the fact that you can't release your own psoas unless you happen to be a manual therapist yourself. But um, so I can access some of this weird stuff, some of this extra stuff that can give me a nice big boost towards improving compensation patterns. The second huge advantage I get in clinic with manual therapy is whereas it would take me a lot of time to test out whether my hypothesis about a compensation pattern is accurate, right? Because maybe I'm thinking there's a dozen overactive structures, three joints that need to be mobilized and six underactive structures that need to be activated before we go into integrated movement patterns, mm -hmm. right? I think you can just think to yourself and go, okay, if I spent five minutes teaching each one of those techniques, my client would have to be here for three hours. Right. But as a manual therapist, once you're a little bit of practiced, you can go through your flows, right? Which I often hear them called. I'll go through my flows and inside of 20, 25 minutes, I've run through 20 to 30 of those techniques. And now I can get somebody up and reassess and go, okay, was this correct? Right? Was my hypothesis right. correct? Was the outcome um, I was looking for the outcome I got? Love that. Right. Right. How much did it change? And chances are, guys, I'm actually not going to do 25 techniques and then assess. Chances are I'm going to do a couple techniques, reassess, couple techniques, reassess, right. couple techniques, reassess. So 
not only am I getting to test my hypothesis very quickly moving through techniques, I'm also getting a chance to go, okay, of my hypothesis, here are some of the big rocks, right? Here mm -hmm. are the, some of the things that made the biggest change. So that at the end of my, okay, so I begin sessions with assessment, then I move through my manual therapy hypothesis testing, right? And at the end of my session, I'm going, okay, let me go through these two or three big rocks with my client, give them those exercises for a home exercise program. As opposed to where I was at before when I had no manual therapy, which was, okay, I have no way to access these techniques. I have no, some of the techniques, right? Some of the right. weird that I was talking about. And I have no way of testing through all of them really fast, right? So when I get to the, the actual uh, home exercise or the exercise portion of this, I would have to go through all of them right. and see which ones work the best. It, it like shrinks my time down a lot to have manual therapy. I love that. I, I'd say it all the time to my students is, why can't we use treatment as a diagnostic tool? You know what I mean? Because if we're able to make a change, then the parameters under which we made that change are impacting the original dysfunction to begin with, or at least are impacted by. And so sure. for me, it's, it's, it's always interesting when, um, and I'll tell when I do like a, an initial assessment with people, I do an eval treat. And I, you know, part of that is a marketing thing is like, oh, they're going to come in for an assessment and a treatment. So that's like, oh, people want to sure. be treated right away, but I'll say it right. I'm very transparent. It's like, I'm treating you now, but I'm still, I'm still assessing you right now. Sure. Um, I think just, it's, as I think the one thing that we do have to make a caveat, cause I do hear this like treatment is assessment and yes, from a practical standpoint of trial and error and figuring out your big rocks, absolutely. But also no because you also need to have a set of reliable, accurate assessments you go back to that you can grade objectively. I think right. when we talk about outcome-driven practice, what a lot of people don't realize is like outcomes doesn't just mean, oh, they feel better. Right, right. Look, modulating pain is easy. Like, sure. I, I hate to say it like that, but modulating pain is fairly easy. It's a pretty unreliable sign because you can make short-term change by rubbing somebody's back that doesn't mean there's going to be any care over carryover or any therapeutic effect long term right right so you have to have those top tier top level assessments something you can measure objectively and then you have your trial and error happening underneath right right it's confirming or denying thing. those top level assessments yeah right? exactly. but you got to go back to like let's say we'll pick something easy like let's say you had somebody who had limited shoulder external rotation and they were came in with anterior shoulder pain. We know that like limited range of motion is probably correlated there. If you did a bunch of stuff, but you didn't go back and retest your objective measure, right? I'm gonna call you out. I'm gonna sure. be like, absolutely. Yeah, you did a bunch of stuff, and the patient feels better. But did you make objective change? Can you show me where that objective change is? Right. I love it. Yeah, that's that's absolutely such a key point. That it, you know, there's no. And, and what you're, what you're describing is an integrated layered approach, right? It, is it's not, it's not just one directional. It's almost like kind of rain, man. There's so many things happening in your mind as you're going through these assessments and, and your interventions kind of simultaneously, but each of those yes, no's, or this change that didn't is taking you down a new path of maybe where you want to look either, you know, maybe further up the chain, further down the chain, or even into how you're going to progress this person you know, through the program. And so, no, I think that's such a great point. Um, and, I, and I think that segues nicely into 
kind of my next question for you. And I'm, I'm going to set you up for this one. This is going to be a layup or an, at least an alley-oop because this is what I was wanting oh, to talk about. Not that type of setup. I'll take it alley-oop. <laughs> well, you're dunking. I'm just, I'm just, so you're dunking. I'm just laying it up there for you. Um, kind of like this whole idea. So I think in recent years, you know, we've, we've seen this, this movement on social media kind of, I guess, I don't know, like people trying to debunk the manual therapy thing or, or saying that it's not evidence-based. Um, they don't that there's not, well, yeah, exactly. So can you expand on that? Because this is something that it's interesting because even into like the general population, I find myself having to say sometimes like, well, that's not really entirely true. You're really just hearing one side of that story. So can you expand on that? What is the state of manual oh. therapy and the evidence at, at work? Yeah, this stuff gets me really frustrated because we have a lot of people talking about evidence-based practice who don't understand what evidence-based practice is. We have a lot of people talking about research who don't actually read research, right? They just right. parrot what some guru said on Instagram. Um, we have, there's a few layers of problems going on here. Um, we have people cherry picking systematic reviews and using a failure to refute the null hypothesis as proof of anything, which that Can you right expand there, that in layman's terms. What does that oh, mean? I, I definitely will. Um, okay. and then I think last, you know, but not least of, of the points I was going to make is, you know, some of these manual therapy techniques are the most well-supported techniques in our body of research. Like I cannot let's put it this way. If joint manipulations are not well-supported, literally nothing in our arsenal is well-supported. If you're going to set the bar above joint manipulations for high quality and high volume of research, there is nothing. Right. Exercise doesn't come close to manipulations. In fact, what would probably come after joint manipulations would be dry needling, which people are like, oh, dry needling does. There is a ton of randomized control trials on dry needling, right? So we have these, these weird things going on in physical therapy where people are like, there's no research or there's not sufficient research or the research isn't good enough. And I'm like, you just knocked down the two or three things that are most well-supported. So if those aren't well-supported and you assume anything you're doing in practice is a better yes. idea, right. you're wrong, right? Because right? the evidence is relative. And that's what we also have to keep in the back of our minds is evidence-based or evidence-supported is a relative statement. It's not a binary statement. You can't say it is or it, or it isn't. isn't. Exactly. It is compared to something else. Right. Um, so, you know, kind of going back through this thing, let's, let's go back to this whole idea of levels of evidence and systematic reviews and all this stuff like that. Easiest question I can ask people to just level the playing field is, do you know why the levels of evidence are in the order that they are? Right? So if we put reviews at the top on some, not all, some levels of evidence, experimental research, observational research, case study and co uh, case study approaches, and then opinion, mm -hmm. right on those five levels, what is that based on? And I would say 95% of the people I asked that question, they're like, <laughs> I was just like, because randomized control trials are better, better than what? Why? Right. Why? What are, exactly. what are you basing that on? Why would a review be better? Right. Why would a review be better than original research? Exactly. Like they're just different. Right. That doesn't mean one is 
better than the other necessarily. Right. So let's get into, let's make this a teaching moment for a second. So levels of evidence from what I can tell were originally set up to try to put research in an order of likelihood to be vulnerable to bias or error, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to stack these things mathematically, right? Mathematically vulnerable to error. So we know that RCTs are a little less vulnerable than observational studies or a little less, well, a lot less vulnerable than um, case studies and right. of course opinions or opinions. But, you know, it's funny, the line that probably should be drawn on our levels of evidence is actually between levels three and four. And levels one, two, and three are kind of like, it's all good. Um, you know, they all are great research. Sometimes you need observational studies because a randomized control trial isn't appropriate. Remember, a randomized control trial is a comparative study. If I'm doing like a study on anatomical location of something or, for example, you know, what are the physical characteristics of a trigger point? That's not a randomized control trial. That's an observational right. study just by design. By like default. You, yeah. Like there's yeah. no other. How do you compare it to? doesn't mean it was right. worse. Right. So the real problem comes in, I think, and I don't th see too many people getting in the, to the back and the forth of RCTs versus observational studies. The people who do obviously have no perspective on which one's which and what they do. Um, it all comes down to these reviews, right? right. And, and this idea that people can use systematic reviews to like nuke the playing field of all other studies. Like whatever a systematic review says is right. Doctrine, right. Right. And the first mistake you're making with that is remember what I said the levels of evidence are based on. They're based on a risk of error, not a presumed error. Right. That means if we were looking at all studies, all we could potentially do is maybe weight studies, right? So maybe we give an RCT 0.9, right? Because it has a, we'll, we're just, this is a very Bayesian way of looking at this, but maybe we give it a 10% chance of error and then we, we wait level three evidence is 0.85, gotcha. but you can't give it a zero. Right. You can't give an observational study a zero and an RCT a one, a full on point, because RCTs can be full of errors and observational studies can have zero, right? You can have a great observational study and a terrible experimental study, right? Sure. Like you, you can't just replace one with the other. And systematic reviews, I think they were originally put at the top, right, by the medical community, right, especially with the influence of big pharma, right, who are trying to figure out how to reduce risks to the most minimal possible. And we get into this really, really important dissection of pharma companies are expected to do prospective MAs. Mm-hmm. And what we see is retrospective MAs. And this is a huge problem. Prospective, you set up in advance. Right. You're going, here's what I'm going to try to find out. Whatever happens, happens. Retrospective, you go, hindsight. Here's my bias. Here's what I'm going to try to prove. Let me go cherry pick the data I want. Right. right? And exclude and find reasons to exclude the others. <laughs> And that's, that is the huge problem there, right? Could uh, systematic reviews, we talked about how systematic reviews are secondary sources. Right. They are using data that is not original. How could that possibly be better? 
well, it could be better if we were setting up a meta-analysis of multiple multi-armed RCTs that we planned out in the future. Right. Right. So we're going to aggregate this data so that no one study can pull us in the wrong direction. But when you do that retrospectively, you lose all of that, that advantage. So that was exactly what I was going to ask you next is like, where, where did this kind of come from? And you already answered it, you know, and, and I think that's part of the idea, like where we do like medical research and how much of that is driven by big pharma because of resources. And it's very easy to test and control these things. Whereas, you know, something like manual therapy is like, how do you control, like, how do you do sham cupping? Like, how do you do sham you know what yeah. I mean? Dry needling. Like that's a really hard thing to control we just, for. We just don't have the resources. I mean, like you take something that was rushed, so to speak, like the vaccine for uh, COVID, you know, their first RCT, their first level of RCTs were back in January, 2020. And we're talking patient populations of 40,000 people. Yeah. Like that's the power pharma has. Right. Now that's a great, thing to want to live up to but the truth of the matter is 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 there 40,000 ATCs in the United States I'm not even sure I think there might be like 50 or 60,000 ATCs about 50 to my knowledge yeah Um, imagine trying to create a study with every living ATC in the United States and like that's kind of the power that big pharma has where we have to be careful that we're not setting ourselves up for failure so we take these retrospective systematic reviews And there's nothing wrong with doing a systematic review on the surface. You want to do a systematic review, that's fine. I think doing a systematic review is probably better than reading a systematic review. But you want to do a systematic review, that's fine. But let's let's be very careful how we're going to interpret this data. Sure. You have a person who already has their biases Mm -hmm. setting up a hypothesis that they created after the fact, right? And now they're pulling research together to potentially use tools like meta-analysis and the math that goes with meta-analysis to determine what the level of evidence is, right? Now, we do have to discuss real quickly, the null hypothesis is not the opposing hypothesis. The null hypothesis is the hypothesis of nothing. Right, zero. Right, that it is like the zero baseline. Mm -hmm. If we fail to refute the null in a systematic review, what have we proved? Nothing. Nothing. Right. We did not prove the contradictory position. To prove the contradictory position would take support unto itself, right? And way too many people right now seem to be thinking that failure to refute the null means opposing position. It does not. And the problem with systematic reviews is once we go into meta-analysis, we are probably making a referendum on the quality of our research and not the actual effects, our findings of the research itself. Right. So what we're kind of saying is like, okay, we have, let's say we know how these RCTs work, right? We found 375 papers, but only six of them qualified (laughs) qualified for our arbitrary (laughs) standards of quality. Right, which they are all arbitrary, by the way. Right. Right. Like if just because you went, well, it had to be a double blind RCT versus a single blind RCT, that doesn't make you better. Right. That makes you have a total lack of perspective for the type of research we have. And I guarantee what some of what's happening is I don't feel like reading 35 
research studies and analyzing all of them. So I'm just going to raise the bar until I get to something that I actually want to do. manageable that I can do in the period of time that I have to get this done in. Right. <laughs> so we raise the bar. Well, going back to what I was going to say previously, what a lot of times ends up happening is you have like, let's say six RCTs and, and all of them show a positive effect individually, but then we, we throw them in the MA, we get failure to refute the null. Well, what is that telling us? Chances are what it's telling us is the quality of our research in this industry does not match, is not high enough to say with the level of confidence we would get from an MA that this is X effective. But that's not saying it's not effective. It's saying right. the research isn't high enough quality. And those are Two, totally two completely different things. different things. Yeah, I listen. I mean, just listening to you talk about this, and obviously, I told you before, I'm a big fan of yours, and I and I and I read pretty much all your stuff, because I and 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 I think you and I kind of vibe too, because I'm not afraid to come out and say in my social media that, you know, for for the people who are saying manual therapy is a waste of time or or doesn't work or all these things that you're just you're just flat out wrong. And and I even posted on my Instagram recently. I was like, for the for the people that argue that point. In my mind, if we were to put them all in a group, and, and again, I'm not calling anybody out, but I was like, what is the manual therapy skill set there? Is it, right. is, it easier to, is it easier to take some of this research, misinterpret it to uh, kind of support your stance that I don't even want to go, I don't want to do this practice? You know what I mean? So the way that I now elevate my status with the profession is to try to, like you said, nuke the playing field and refute anybody else who's doing a hands-on or any kind of manual technique. And that now makes me better or practicing at the top of my license. And, and so, you know, so it's like basically ripping others down to get that leg up. And, and just from a, like a social standpoint, I don't agree with that. And it's, it's, when well, did this like happen? This... When did we cross this bridge? Because I remember in school, we never, we talked about evidence and research a lot, but we never, kind of put it on this pedestal of evidence base. It was like anything we should do should have some, you know, research right. or guidance behind it. Otherwise, what are we doing? You know what I mean? And, but again, if we don't, but the other side of that, again, in my opinion is if we don't push the boundary of what we're currently doing, how do we ever explore or discover something new? Right. how do we get here? Brent? I think, how do we get here? Okay. Well, let me, let me, in your opinion, what down. do you think, let me try to break this down in a in a in a in a way that's logical. Number one, I think we switch to this idea that we're going to be evidence based, and people don't really understand what they're looking for because their their understanding of research interpretation, their understanding of statistics is pretty weak. And that's not all of our colleagues' fault. I, I, the education in our industry, you know, I think a lot of people do think that I do what I do because I love education. That's not true. I do it because I hate the state of education. Um, you, you hate know, the you current mo- you hate the current state of it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That's absolutely. what's dri- that's your driving force behind right. the institute. Whether it's Love cost, it. access, flexibility, accuracy, enjoyment, delivery, like these are all the things we're trying to fix. If we go back, like to your statistics course that you took, potentially in your undergrad, maybe in your master's, maybe you got a little stats in your doctorate degree, right? If we're we're talking about clinical doctorates here now. Um, It was probably taught incredibly poorly. It was not put in any sort of practical view. Context, right. So now you don't remember almost any of it. 
And so now for you to actually understand even some of the conversation that we're having right now, you need to go back and reteach yourself statistics. That's not all, all our colleagues' fault. And sure. I feel bad that that's where we're at. Introduction to research methods, same thing. We got this like rough and tumble introduction to research methods course without the practical application of like what I was talking about with that Bayesian treatment of the levels of evidence. We got taught the levels of evidence, but not even why they exist. Right. Right. So I think that has to change first. I think the next thing that we're seeing and why we see so much negative news is, you know, there's actually some studies to show that controversy spreads six times faster on social media than positive or educational posts. Sure. This is something that even, you know, the Brookwish Institute is a scaling education company. We've had to deal with it. We've had to find ways to be controversial in the right way, I guess, which is Same. where our myth totally. busting comes in Yeah. Um, and trying to correct some of these because we can't compete otherwise. It's not fair. Like right. we're trying to put up great educational material and somebody else puts up like manual therapy sucks and they get right. six times the traffic and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. But that's not true. Right. Right. So you take or, that. Or that's your opinion. Right. Right. Exactly. But we're passing it as a fact. And, and, and I, you know, and I, <laughs> I a hundred percent agree with you and I have and to we, unfollow some of those accounts because it's just, it aggravates me. And, yeah. and, and, and I love you because you're just like in the comments going, <laughs> you're, you're a warrior for all of and us. And here's 12 research you studies. Go ahead yeah, and, read and you're like, Oh, <laughs> Oh, you mean this research? And then you're going like, you just dissected yeah. the way you just dissected it for us in the last like 15 or 20 minutes. And, and I <laughs> respect and appreciate you so much for that because it's, it pains me to see when I teach like for rock tape or even my own education that I'm, I'm starting to develop and, and want to get out there when, when these types of uh, viewpoints come from really young clinicians or clinicians that are just getting started. And, and what I appreciate so much about my early part of my career was the ability to explore these things without bias. Sure. And, and how much that's impacted the way that I practice today. And it's like, you're already subsetting it, like you've already painted yourself in a corner yeah. professionally or at least as far as skill set and potential to help somebody you're you're just taking your toolbox and saying all of these tools on the right side of the garage i'm not going to concern myself with that i'm just going to use this one tool for every job and it's right. like good luck with worked. that that's really tough you know yeah, I think we see a lot of, um, you know, kind of moving through those points that you were asking me, how did this happen, right? So we have this misunderstanding of evidence-based. We have this need to push negative information so that people get attention on social media. Right. Um, we have people, what that actually breaks down to, and I want you guys to watch people for this. If you're watching this podcast right now and you want to know who the fakes are, the fakes cherry pick systematic reviews and use a failure to refute the null as proof of the opposing view. And we just talked about how that's a complete fallacy. That's a right. fallacy in logic. It's a logical fallacy, about. right. Right? I think where some of the other motivation comes in is what you're talking about, which is what I call excuse-driven physical therapy or excuse-driven therapy. I don't want to learn this because it's hard. So... I'm going to use this systematic review that says it doesn't work and hold it up as the nuke. Every time somebody tries to say it's like a shield, it's like a shield from having right. a put, you know, 
ex, you know, push yourself outside your comfort zone. You know what I mean? And, and to your analogy about the toolkit, a lot of the reason, so there's this guy named Ioannidis that everybody should know about. He's very famous on the statistics side of things. One of the big problems we also have is when people want to understand research better in our field, they turn to other clinicians rather than statisticians who actually know how to interpret this stuff. Um, but I and I just did a study that showed that only 3% of systematic reviews were useful, including meta-analysis. Wow. 3%. Wow. Now, part of that comes into this other weird thing, which is kind of what you're getting at, which is realize that research is not a, it's not a nuke. It's more like a sniper rifle. Mm -hmm. It takes out one very specific yes or no question at a time. So when people use a systematic review that says, well, manual therapy doesn't work, I'm like, how does that even make sense? Right. Like, how did you do a research study for all manual therapy, for all conditions, in all situations, right. based on all objective measures? Because did you do that? Because I don't think you did. No. Which then gets into you're overgeneralizing the findings of a study, which we got told in research methods was not cool, but now that's exactly what you're doing and you think it's okay. <laughs> Oh, right. Whereas when you look at research, like let's take taping, for example, right? So Love rock it, tape, right in my wheelhouse, right? Rock tape got really beaten up a few years ago because, uh, you know, these studies started coming out and there. Some of them are kind of negative. And I'm talking about original data here. I'm not sure. talking about. Sure. And people are like, see, rock tape doesn't work. See, rock tape doesn't work. See, rock tape doesn't work. And again, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you can't just make blanket generalized statements like that. Right. Right. So what do we start to find? Well, we start to find that taping might not be the greatest thing for creating a therapeutic effect for reducing pain. If you just place it over the painful site. Okay. Yeah. Um, it might have some acute treatment. I can, some acute things. Like if you throw it over somebody's low back, when they have low back pain, we can get, you know, a difference in afferentation that might help them, right, move a little bit better. And that's all great. But did we expect the tape to have a therapeutic effect? Maybe not. Right. But you start looking into it a little bit deeper and you start seeing studies where you go, oh, wait. But if I do that lower trap taping, we do have studies that show that it inhibited the overactivity of the upper trapezius in people who had shoulder and scapular dysfunction. Now we're getting somewhere. Wait a sure. second. You mean tape? is effective yes when you use it for x y and z and your goal is in this case i would assume improve carryover between sessions right which is how we use it that's exactly right? how we to teach it your outcomes right right so we use it at the brook bush institute all my videos on using rock tape actually uh that was the tape i had and i had a good relationship with you guys at the time and it's love good. it all the tape for for athletes, right? Like some of the other taping brands are a little weak if you're right. Right. We're just having options is kind of nice, you know? Yeah. So anyway, going back, like, you know, you look at, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to use tape to reinforce activation exercises we did in the session to improve carryover. And you start thinking, okay, that, that kind of makes sense, right? Because tape is going to help you stay out of certain positions in order to stay out of those certain positions because it's going to aggravate skin, right? When you get tugged right. on. Mm -hmm. In order to stay out of those positions, you have to activate those underactive muscles if you tape it properly, which means we have a mean increase in activity between sessions for the for a couple of days that the tape works, 
which makes sense that it would improve carryover. Okay, now we have a very specific use, and this is where research is powerful. Right. But you can tell just in the example I just gave that was so different than where you were like, how did this happen? Well, I certainly didn't use an incredibly reductionistic approach to make an excuse for why I didn't want to learn something and then posted it on social media so that I could get the negative vibes and get attention. Like, and rally the troops of the people who also don't want to take that leap. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You got to rally, you got to rally the troops. And of course, man, it is really easy to rally troops on social media. The more friends you are right now, Oh man. More of a echo chamber you can create. Oh, we definitely see some crazy stuff. Yeah. And, and, and that, and that, that kind of goes beyond even like clinical practice and rehab. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's kind of a nice little, like maybe a 30,000 foot view of just what we're seeing in general, like how information oh, yeah. travels and especially how controversial information or maybe information that isn't, um, you know, within the realm of what, and it's, again, it goes both ways, right? The extremes are always the the noisiest and they become, at least perception wise representative of the whole. And it's not, you're talking about very small amounts of people that are, that are saying this, but they have so much influence and so much noise behind it that it makes it seem like it's this larger movement than it really is. And so um, science is, science is conservative. It's moderate. Right. It's, it's objective. It moves slow. So when you see big swings, something's up, somebody's not being scientific in their approach. You know, I think people think like I'm, you know, we get trolled, oh, Brent's pro-manual therapy. Not all manual therapy. Sure. And I'm not pro-manual therapy for any use. I mean, one thing that I talk about all the time is we don't treat based on diagnosis. So they're like, do you manipulate for low back pain? I don't know. Is it hypermobile or hypomobile? Right. Right. What is the compensation pattern I'm trying to address? Because if I'm manipulating, I have a mobility problem. There's a stiffness issue. Right. Like, can we see that? Like, I'm not some extremist who's going, oh, yeah, just like rub things. You'll get better. Like, that's right. You know, you talk about what I even think of when uh, how I think of manual therapy. It's not like I'm going in there and going, everybody needs manual therapy for everything. In fact, manual therapy is very mobility biased. So if somebody's hypermobile, chances are with me, they're getting a lot less manual therapy. 100%. Because, because everything's already really mobile. They need to like get a lot more activation exercise. Maybe I release a couple of trigger points or maybe they have a stiffness in, in an area, but they're getting right. a lot of like exercise, right? Um, the, but yeah, the point being stuff. is that you have it. It's, it's, it's an option for you when the criteria and the situation calls for it and to completely refute it altogether means that you don't have that opportunity, you know, and again, it's, and so this, maybe this kind of segues into this whole idea that like, you know, when did a short, go ahead, go ahead, finish your point. Just, and I want to make this point because people keep making this point too. Research is very clear in randomized control trials that in the acute phase, manual therapy generally outperforms exercise. Yep. But most importantly, ubiquitously across all the research, exercise and manual therapy outperforms either one by itself. It's it's greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. We have to stop thinking either or and start thinking and. Right. Like we're all about an integrated approach. If it works, 
I will use it. And I would argue that most people using a manual therapy skill set are in that mindset in 2021 that we're integrating this with that. And so like when you get like to the people that are like, oh, manual therapy sucks, you know, I dis I agree with the point that like, I'm not just going to treat somebody on the table and then call it a day. I fixed you. Like, I don't think that's the mindset of people that are using manual therapy yet. That movement is blanketing manual therapy. Like we're all quacks just thinking we're fixing people on the table. And so like, just to sum up, like even just what you just said about evidence in general. And again, one of my one liners that I like to share with my students is like, and especially when they're asking me about research projects that they're working on and how to find research. That's a question I get asked a lot and anybody can have their own hypothesis and find research that supports that. You know, there's plenty of ways to find research that proves that you're right about something. And I put that in air quotes, but the point of research is just to be less wrong, not to be, be less wrong about everything, not right about one thing. And And I I think think that's the piece that people miss. I think we also have to be careful. Remember my sniper rifle example. You know, research is just one you know, there's this, this painting by a guy named Surat that uses pointillism and the whole picture is made up of little dots. Yep. Right. Like some of you guys, it's called something like river on the Gange summer day. I know exactly what you're I'm talking sorry about. Yeah. My art, I'm sorry for my art majors. Brent, my you know what? Honestly, artist. your art history is so poor that I can't, no, I know. We, can't, we have to refute everything you've already said. <laughs> I know my, my validity just went down. Um, but, you know, think about that conceptually, like think about a picture that, you know, when you get really close, all you see is all these little dots. But when you get further away, it looks like a picture. Sure. Each dot is one research study. Until you do a comprehensive review of all of the research and come up with a nuanced, relatively objective conclusion, like that example I used with uh, rock tape, mm-hmm. right, where it's like, okay, it doesn't work for this. It does work for this. It seems to create this outcome better than this outcome. You end up with these nuanced conclusions Right. That's what research helps us get to. Yes. It's never yes or no. It's never binary. It's never binary. Nothing's black and white. Right. It's, yeah. Life is probabilistic, number one. But yeah, I I tell that's a, yeah, you can't look at a painting through a microscope. And the more we zoom in, and again, this is even like one of maybe, again, this might be just my opinion, but I feel like one of the, the uh, foundational flaws of our healthcare system is, is there are no more generalists and, and I'm, you know, and, and one of the knocks against athletic training as a profession is it's too general. The, the, the profession is too general in its training. It's not specific enough. And, and that's why it doesn't maybe hold as much weight as maybe some of the other rehab professions. Physical therapy um, is a bunch of generalists. I don't know if that. Well, so, well again, but you fine. have your really your specialties, right? You have your subspecialties within the profession that I guess give it more clout. And so my point being is that I feel like in our modern healthcare system in, the, in America is that everybody's so zoomed in on one thing that they miss everything else. And you're always going to find an answer within the parameters of the lens that you're looking through because it's human condition. It's bias. It's it's, comfort, it's and, and that doesn't bias. mean that you're a bad person or a bad clinician, but if you go to a podiatrist for foot pain, they're going to give you a foot answer for that problem. Right. They're not going to say, you know what, you have a, some core instability and, and, and I'd really like to maybe address some of these more proximal issues and then put your foot in a better environment and integrate those things back together. You're never going to get that approach when you go see, you know what I mean? You go see a, a knee specialist and they give you an MRI of that knee, you're going to get a knee answer and a knee right. solution. And that doesn't, and, and statistically speaking, that hasn't worked for us, you know? Right. So right, okay, I, think- I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but if I can steal you for a little bit longer, 
Sure. Um, you know, you already kind of answered this whole idea of like, you know, so the, the whole belief that exercise is, is better than manual therapy. And, and you're already kind of illustrated to that point. But um, at what point, because for me specifically, I saw, like I, I told you my background of, of seeing the table stuff and just being absolutely fascinated by it, but I'm coming from a strength and conditioning background and understanding that they're at a certain oh, wow. level, we have to load tissues. We have to put people, we have to challenge them in order to change these uh, things long-term. And so, and so manual therapy gets pegged as, okay, yeah, we, even the, the haters, I guess, will say, yeah, it gives you a short-term effect. And that's why it's no good because it's just short-term. And, and in my mind, I'm like, so why is that bad? Why, why is that a bad thing? Even if it is short-term, like, why wouldn't you take the fast lane to something? If, you're, if, if our outcomes at the end of the day are going to both involve exercise and we can agree that, and I don't believe that there's a destination in rehab ever, but that the destination is improving somebody's function and we agree that exercise is part of that pro- process, then why wouldn't you want to take the fast lane? I, I don't understand why that wouldn't be something to be like, oh, absolutely. Like, that's, that's a no-brainer to me. Yeah, I mean, let's first blow up the point that the whole idea that it's only short-term effective is also a lie and based on a logical fallacy. I actually have a post that we put up about every six months or so that posts literally a couple dozen studies that show long-term efficacy of manual therapy. And there are CTs in case anybody (laughs) is level of evidence Nazi, despite not knowing what- But I thought this didn't exist. Right. (laughs) Well, whatever, Brooke Bush, you cherry picked that research. That's not what you asked me. You asked me if there was evidence. I showed you there's evidence. And, you know, my goal is never to cherry pick anyway. But um, again, my goal is always comprehensive review. So when we talk about this whole short term versus long term manual therapy, number one, it's a lie. It shows that somebody has not taken a comprehensive review of all the research. We know that manual therapy can have long-term effectiveness. We also know that when we combine manual therapy and exercise, the long-term efficacy of either is better than either alone, right? right? So we see that over and over again. Um, I think the fallacy came in is a lot of the studies, most studies are short-term, right? Because long-term follow-up costs more work and money. And they're really difficult to to do, right? Right. You have to start with much larger participant pools because you always have dropout. Right. So um, this idea that because there wasn't long-term follow-up means that there is no long-term effect is a ridiculously obvious logical fallacy. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Just because all that was done was short-term doesn't mean that there was no long-term. That's like me giving you my verbal scores on my SATs and you looking back at me and going, so you sucked at math? <laughs> no, I didn't give you my math scores. Like, right. what are you talking about? Right. Right. Like I, I just did a short-term study. So I gave you the short-term results. Now to your point, right. Even if they were just short-term, you show me a patient who wants to take longer to get out of pain. I'll wait. Exactly. Yeah, like it doesn't make any sense. If I can use manual therapy and somebody is in less pain in seven days versus 30 days, despite being maybe the same at six months, right? Like I already know what the haters are going to say. They're the same at six months. Yeah, but the difference of being in pain for seven days versus 28 days is not a small difference. And if you think it's a small difference, you've never been in pain. Right. Right? Not to mention that once you get to that chronic pain state, now you're talking about people having... 
like brain chemistry changes long term beyond that, you know. And so Although the centralization thing, we got to be careful with too. Like you're looking at CRPS mm-hmm. participants and like trying to say that all orthopedic pain works that way. And I, I'm not totally buying that one. I think a lot of times we have compensation patterns that are continuing to increase stress on tissues. Sure as opposed to having like centralized pain that we now have to deal with like some psychosocial intervention like CBT, but, um, but the reality yeah, is that somewhere maybe in the out. middle, right? There's maybe yeah. that that's somewhere in the middle we, and we can't rule it out as, Oh, that's not part of that. But sure. again, that's where I think having that, you know, taking that step back and understanding, yes, there's a person attached to these tissues. Maybe their cognitive biases are definitely going to affect that, how they interpret their own pain experience. And, and again, if you can give somebody, and for me, you know, I, I treat manual therapy a lot of times that buy-in tools, like, you know, maybe somebody's going to stick to the process better because we're giving them some type of relief and result right away that they can buy into your long-term plan for them when maybe going the other way. Now I'm suffering for extended periods of time. And I just say, you know what? F this. I I can't, I give up. Give me the drugs. Give me the needle. Give me the surgery because it's not getting better. And, and people are horribly impatient. And especially now today where instant gratification is the name of the game. I I think it's even more important in, in today's society to show people a path of improvement quicker than, um, than, then we can be patient because their attention spans just are not there. And we want to get people out of pain and reduce the number of total sessions anyway. Like right. I know if you're thinking in business terms, you're like, well, no, I want to get them as many sessions as possible. I guess that works if you're taking insurance, but if sure. you don't you in your cash pay, you need to get people out of your office as quickly as possible. Otherwise you're not getting referrals. So, right. um, you know, I think going, uh, I had a point here. I was going to go full circle on this stuff. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, you know, we were just talking about like the, the, the manual therapy and like, oh, I remember what it is. Like, we also have to remember, again, evidence is relative. Right. right. So I talked about at the beginning of this conversation, you would be very, very hard pressed to find more high quality research supporting any modality than manipulations or dry needling. What I think is very interesting is these pain science zealots, mostly new grads, waving this flag of anti-manual therapy. And what do they do? Well, they're promoting, the only other things I ever see them promote are pain science education, education, right? And graded activity, which in randomized control trials perform horribly. Like these things are less effective when used by themselves than almost anything else. I saw one study that showed ultrasound was more effective than pain science education. So if you think pain science education is the pinnacle, the, the, right. the, yeah, the pinnacle that you're going for, you, you're a hypocrite. Right. You can't say be anti-manual therapy and say the effect sizes are low. There's no long-term benefit and then go pain science education because the research is not there. Right. Graded activity. Again, there's no research there. Graded exposure, which is a little different. If you're using therapy time, to explain to somebody that they should slowly ramp up their activity. You're not a therapist. Right. And and honestly, I think a lot of people too would understand that, you know, what is the feeling and experience that they get on that back end as I would feel neglected in some way. And like, and again, like when I talk to students too, and we talk about the biopsychosocial approach, right. I think manual therapy 
checks off all three boxes for us. It, it becomes an amazing way that we can influence the body biologically, which we know. It's an amazing way to deliver education as a vehicle to deliver this education. You're engaged with me now. I'm touching you. I'm doing something to you, with you, for you, however you want to describe that. And then socially, we're creating now a, a team. Like now, now this is beyond just me telling you what to do. This is me helping you prepare for the path in front of you, not just showing you what to avoid in the future. You know what I, I mean? I can't take a ne really nerdy approach to that problem too, which this is something that people forget. Like number one, biopsychosocial, that bio is biomechanical, biological, right. right? That's what we do. Right. We don't do psychosocial. We are not well prepared to do psychosocial. The part of that equation you can have the largest effect on as a therapist is the, is the biological bio. yes, factor. I agree with you. So even if of the three that happen to be the least correlated with pain, it's still where you can have the largest effect, right? right. So you need to do what you can have the largest effect on. And even with these psychosocial things, even if somehow we were CBT trained, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy trained. I don't think the effect sizes of cognitive behavioral therapy on pain are going to be larger than manual therapy's effect on pain, despite whatever correlational research we have on biological versus psychosocial impacts. Right. You know, you start getting into some of these biopsychosocial issues and it's like one of the biggest predictors of long-term pain is employment status. Are you going to give people jobs? Right. Right. Like you have to think to yourself. Or financial stress. I... Sure. That makes total sense too. That makes total right. sense. It makes, it makes sense, but where can you have an effect? An effect You're a that. therapist, exactly. a right. manual therapist, a movement therapist, a human movement specialist. This is what we do. Right. And you're trying to knock what we do so that you can, I, I mean, if you wanted to be a To promote something that we're not actually formally trained in, but if you right. have some knowledge and go pursue that knowledge in those other areas and add it, to a manual therapy skill set, I, I feel like those are, the, you know, pain, again, and that's not something education. I was doing on purpose. Like the psychosocial yeah. part, I think only in recent years have I been more deliberate about delivering that kind of stuff. But in my 10 years prior to that, as a, as a practicing athletic trainer, creating strong relationships with my athletes was just an intangible thing that I did. And, you know, listening to people was just something I did because it's being a, a genuine person in, in some way. And so and being, I was doing psychosocial by mistake, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. On some level. And so I do think it gets glorified now. And I, and I do think it's valuable for people to be aware that these are factors, Definitely. but it shouldn't take away from where we do have potentially our <laughs> largest impact or where we do have our largest impact. Um, the, the other two don't, don't decrease the efficacy of, of the biological, the biomechanical yeah. side at all. And so uh, that's like, I, I really appreciate you saying that because I, somewhere along the lines, it's almost seemed that people put out things that like biomechanics don't matter. And I'm like, yeah. I, I, I couldn't so, disagree with that. Anymore, my, it, you know, you've got to ask that relative question. If biomechanics don't matter, what does, what does, right. Exactly. What, co what impairment are you correlating with this person's pain? Right. What is your objective measure that you're going to use to show improvement? And then what technique are you going to use to change that objective measure to ensure that you are actually getting results? And when you break it down to somebody like that, it's like, oh. right. Right. Yeah. Like they just, they don't know. And you're like, look, man, there's way too much of this 
I can tell you one fallacy I see way too much of, right? And it, this goes back to the cherry picking systematic reviews to show that they don't refute the null to oppose something like that, that doesn't work. And it's all off this other fallacy called the unsupported default position fallacy, which is if I prove you wrong, I'm more I'm right. 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 That's false. Every position has to be supported unto itself. So if you're knocking somebody else, that doesn't make you more right. You still haven't proven anything of your own technique. Mm -hmm. So now if you want to compare our techniques, now we can have a good debate. Now we can have a good discussion. Now we can have something that like we can go back and forth about. But this idea that you can just throw jabs, throw jabs, throw stones, throw stones, throw stones. And some of the Instagram accounts we've talked about that we've blocked, that's all they do. They never right. offer up techniques. All they do is knock other people's stuff. You have to start looking at that person and going, yeah, but what do they do? Right. How what are, are you they replacing that it with? they're effective? Yeah. yeah. What are they actually teaching you to do? Because I can tell you as a teacher, I've known for 15 years now, let me tell you something really unethical to do as a teacher. Tell somebody that what they're doing is wrong and don't give them a replacement for it. Right. Like that is one of the most horrible things you can possibly do as an educator. Now, most of these people are horrible educators, no doubt. Right. These Instagram accounts that we're talking about, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call them educators. You, they, they have no knowledge of education, but I mean, you guys listening to this podcast, you should be hearing this and being like, yeah, yeah. Like all he tells me is what I'm doing wrong. And then like, I ask him what I'm doing right. And he's like, yeah, just do whatever you're doing, man. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. What is that? As long, as long as you agree with me, I don't care what you do. <laughs> you, so know? My, you know, some of the favorite people I follow, I don't agree with them all the time, but you made this point at the beginning of this that I think is so important. If we don't have evidence in the form of research, what's the next evidence we need to go to? Well, we need to go to outcomes from reliable assessments and practice, right? And so some of these accounts that are really like outside of what we're doing, because I know we're essentially only the education company who's willing to do all of these comprehensive lit reviews, right? Like mm -hmm. every one of our courses is basically on top of one of these comprehensive lit reviews. It's a lot of work. Most people are not willing to do that. If you're not willing to do that, then try some shit and base your stuff on outcomes, right? right? And like, so I watch these accounts and I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Wouldn't do that. Wouldn't do that. That's cool. I might try that. That's cool too. I kind of like that one. And maybe they only hit on something that I, now granted, I have some experience. I have tried a lot of things over the last 20 years, but maybe I wouldn't try more than 20% of what they show. But the fact is, is every once in a while they hit on gems. Right. Because they're out there trying shit. And what will happen is, is if they continue refining their practice based on outcomes, they will get to an effective place. Mm -hmm. I think that. it's funny that like people look at me and, and they go, oh, well, some people, some experienced professionals are like, well, yeah, I was already kind of treating like you were talking about. Yeah, if you have some experience, I would not be surprised. Yeah, if you've treated enough a lot of people, people, you've yeah, come down a lot that of people road, treat actually. like I do. Right. Yeah, because we all kind of find the most effective techniques. We all kind of find this repertoire of stuff. And then when that, we find each other, we feel better, right? We're like, oh, validated on some level yeah. that we got to a similar place, maybe from divergent paths at some point. Right. Um, and, and there's a lot of I, truth 
to that, right? And I'm just the guy who's going, hey guys, I'll do all the research. Yeah, and, I, and again, I'll, and you, what I'll you do, provide I'll, I'll is, is so valuable up. to all of the rehab professions. And, and so on behalf of all of us, the good, on behalf of the non-haters, thank you, Brent, for your contribution are- and for going to do the dirty work because it's not easy. Um, I just wrote my first, you know, seven hour course on acute care and during, it was like my COVID project when the business was shut down and I needed to something constructive with my time. Otherwise I was going to freak out. Um, and so, and I started with researching, like I had my, my approach that I wanted to lay out. And I started with researching the stuff that would refute my approach, the other side. And, and I think a lot of people just go right to what supports them and, and it can be well, really difficult. And again, this research conversation is so nuanced and it's so technical and it's I don't think all it right and wrong be. ways to go about it. I don't think it has to be though, because right. if you look at research as data, data is all just points. data. Right. Yeah. It's, it doesn't refute or conflict it, it refines, right? Mm-hmm. So again, going back to that rock tape example I gave, it's not about finding evidence that refutes. That evidence isn't refuting. It's giving you a new data point. Right. That's it. And people are like, well, did you look, this is like the favorite, one of the new favorite troll things. Well, did you look up data that refuted your position? How could I? I came to my conclusion from looking at all of the data to begin with. Right. I didn't go in with preconceived notions. Mm-hmm. If you want to be wrong, have a preconceived notion and then look at the research. No, I'm just going to look at the research and go, oh, based on all of this data, here's the nuanced, and that's the important point. Here is the nuanced, relatively objective, and I say relatively because it's impossible to have zero bias. I get that. But the nuanced, relatively objective conclusion I can make, and I'm going to stay as conservative as possible, being that the Brooke Bush Institute is accredited by like 20 organizations, and we are battling that whole thing, right? To try to make sure you guys get credit. But so tough. You know, if we start with this idea of I'm going to look at all the research first, then there is no other side. Like what would the other side be? The no research side? Do you you think, do you think that people have that problem because looking at all the research first is just such, so much, such an overwhelming thing that it's easier to jump on one bandwagon and just stick to it. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, you've seen, you've seen my stuff, Mike, there's barely yeah. a course that has less than a hundred citations. I know I dude, That's even a- your Instagram posts have, don't have less than 30. Like <laughs> you're a one minute video and then you got to swipe through nine slides of research. And, and no, again, I, and I Hold just on. love it because for the people who say there is no research, it's like, I just comment in your comments and like, That's, like, what the- do you, how can you say that there's none? You're just not looking for it. <laughs> That's the service we provide. Like you don't have to look through all 30 pages of, of citations. The, the, the service that we're trying to provide is a very transparent look at all the research right. and then summarize it for you into a little course that you can get CECs. For. Listen, I, 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 I look, <laughs> I do it. I take full advantage of the fact that you've gone done that work. So uh, thank you. Yeah. It, it steal our bibliographies. Right. Please steal our bibliographies. That's right. what they're there for. That's Brent why is I- giving everybody permission to use his bibliographies and go through. <laughs> Please. Uh, one last thing that I wanted to bring sure. up um, before we maybe wrap this up is you have a new course coming out uh, on vibration therapy. Is that, is that correct? Oh, those came out. Uh, came out already. Right. Yeah, yeah, but you're just, that's kind of like the latest thing I've seen you guys kind of talking about a lot on your social channels. Is that pointing yeah, we people go. at that? Look, Mike, and you have this, re- have- you have this relationship with maybe Hyperize. Can you explain a little bit about that course and maybe just give us more insight as to uh, Brookbush Institute and what people can expect on your website or any new projects that you're really excited about that are maybe coming down the pipeline? 
nice segue there for a personal plug. Thanks, bud. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, look, we have more than 150 courses, right? The vibration courses are three of those courses. Right. Our value, right, is like I'm trying to optimize delivery of education. And, you know, that comes down to all the accuracy stuff we've been talking about where everything is going to be based on comprehensive reviews of the original research to how we deliver that education, right? With, I, I'm trying to be engaging. I'm trying to write good lesson plans. I'm trying to explain with clarity, right? We talk about scaffolding, all that fun mm -hmm. stuff in education. Right, right. But then you have this other side of it that's important to me too, which is convenience, flexibility, which is why all of our courses are one to four hours long. They're modular. You take one little test at a time and get credits as you go. You can do it by the app or your phone. And here's the big one. It's all just $19.99 a month. Right. It's the Netflix model, right? So we have 150 courses and three certifications and you get access to all of it for $19.99 a month. If you took all of them in one month and canceled, it would have cost you $19.99. We're cool with that, right? If, if it works for Netflix, we're going to do it too. Love that. Yeah, right. So they must it, be doing it, something right. It changes, well, it changes the dynamic, I think, in the right way. It lowers the barrier of entry for education, so everybody can give it a try. We even have a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you get on, you don't like it, you can message us. We'll give you a refund. I don't want to take people's money. I want to earn it. Mm -hmm. right? And to that earning point, we lowered the barrier of entry. We hope we keep you forever, but it's because we keep adding courses. We have a huge library that interests you. We continue to create these certifications and other credentials, like we're actually working on including a master's degree in this, which would be huge. Wow. Imagine a master's degree. You could get one credit at a time for $19.99 a month via an app on your cell phone. Like that's my Steve Jobs ding in the universe level idea. I love that, um, man. That's awesome. I hope you do. So, I mean, obviously we're really serious about this whole education piece, but to that, you know, the Netflix model, why I like it for education is lower barrier of entry. And then we have to earn your, your continuing on this membership. Mm -hmm. right? Which puts it back in our, uh, the, the responsibility back on us, which is where it should be. Right. Right. We're not profitable actually, if you cancel in one month, but that's okay. Most people don't cancel in one month because so far we seem to be making people pretty happy. Yeah. Um, and we'll continue to make people happier. You mentioned the vibration courses. We have three of them. Um, we did use the hypervolt. The research is there. Um, again, we're not going to, I know there's some great stuff out there. Um, that's not, research supported right now you have to understand that we probably won't jump up like cupping for example i don't know what the research is on cupping uh i don't think there's a whole lot out there yet probably right. not a course we would write right off the bat because we have to go through that accreditation process which is right. not so easy to get through mm -hmm. um but things like vibration that has a lot of research taping those courses are coming up um we're working on i i'm working on is iastm next month um, we're doing systematic reviews on all of the, um, acute variables. So like rep ranges, time in between set number of sets per exercise. Like we're doing all of that stuff. Sure. That's all coming in the next year. Case studies. Um, we've started experimenting on social media with presenting case studies, seeing what questions we get back so that we can design those case studies in a way that's most useful for the student. Um, yeah, that's some of the stuff we're doing. I mean, I love it, man. I, you know, listen, you guys, you, you and fast, your team so. do a tremendous job. Um, it, it's been, uh, and again, I came across your stuff years ago, you know, when I was still early in my career as well. And it, it definitely impacted me and it's been awesome 
to see you got your growth and your team's growth and how much value you've brought to the industry. Um, so I'm, I'm just so glad that we were able to sit down and, and kind of chop it up and, you know, maybe debunk some of these myths and fallacies that are out there. And maybe just, again, just raise the level of awareness when it comes to the fact that none of this stuff is cut and dry. None of this stuff is black or white or binary. Like you said, um, Life is probabilistic. It, it, that's a great, and maybe that great way to, to end it. But, um, yeah, anything else you'd like to add, but thank, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on. And again, if you, if you guys are not following uh, Brooke Bush Institute on Instagram and, and LinkedIn and all the social platforms, you're doing it wrong. Um, and definitely go check them out at, at brookebushinstitute.com um, and all of the, the information for in terms of like the memberships and your courses yeah. and all about that is all if you guys, the website is super ready. clean, really easy to find. Yeah, if you guys aren't ready to, to, to give us money, that's fine. Like I'm not trying, like I said, to steal people's money get on social media. We give away more content than most education platforms oh, have. Sure. Right. Um, I don't think, you know, to your point, Mike, I really appreciate your support. Obviously you're a, a fabulous clinician and you, you get this stuff out there and you've created a following for yourself, but you know, I hope it comes across that there's no bigger fan of our colleagues than me. Mm-hmm. Um, I work my ass off. My team works our ass off and it's because we love you guys. Like yeah. we, we think we deserve better. We're trying to build the education platform that we wish existed. Right. Um, you know, and luckily I've, I not only have the work ethic and, and maybe the aptitude or, or um, disposition to sit down and do these lit reviews, right? Like <laughs> I'm kind of a nerdy guy and I've gotten lucky enough that I've been able to scale this company and we've been able to take on larger and larger projects, which you know, could, could get us to the point where, where like, yeah, all of your credits count for CECs, your next certification and towards a master's degree, which would be really incredible. And something yeah. I didn't even oh, wow. think was possible eight years ago. And now, now here we are. So That's Mike, fantastic. I definitely appreciate you having me on and, and hopefully we can do this again in the future. Absolutely. Would love to. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll, uh, knock down some other myths or something. I don't know. We'll figure uh, it out. Yeah. I'm sure we'll find a, find something to talk about for sure. But again, thank you so much, Brent. And um, if, again, if you guys will put in, I'll put in the show notes, all those links, all those social tags, definitely check it out. It'll be well worth the price of admission, which is free. So get on there and, and check out some stuff. Um, yep. And then uh, for us, please follow, you know, at the movement underground and the movement underground radios on Spotify and Apple um, podcasts. And you can also check us out on YouTube at The Movement Underground. Thank you guys so much, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Movement Underground Radio. If you like the episode, please subscribe so that you're notified when new episodes drop. You can follow us on Instagram at The Movement Underground. You can follow me on Instagram at MikeStella underscore ATC. Please visit us on the web at themovementunderground.com. And check out our YouTube channel at The Movement Underground. If any of you guys have any questions or would like to leave a comment, please do so or reach out to us through any one of those channels. We'd be happy to get back to you. Uh, if you would like to be featured on The Movement Underground Radio, definitely drop us a line and we can talk. So we hope you liked it and we'll see you guys next time.